What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. The Age of Enlightenment occurred during the 17th and 18th centuries in which it questioned the status quo of what was currently thought to be true. From philosophy to science to religion and morality, it was the conception of a new period of intellectual reasoning and the search for truth. Ultimately, this gave birth to a resurrection of an ancient concept that was made new in the form of a term called relativism. And it began to gain popularity in the 19th and 20th centuries and is extremely alive and well today. This teaching basically says this, the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, and historical context and are not absolute. So in other words, relativism teaches that there are no absolute truths. So we can't know anything to be true absolutely. Well, this concept has caused quite a stir in religious circles of our day, especially the church, asking a very controversial question. Is Jesus Christ exclusively the only way to heaven? That's the question that we've come to grips and ask ourselves really since the days of Christ when he ascended up to glory to wait his return. But in recent years, in recent days, in recent decades, in the last few hundred years, this question has really plagued the minds of humanity to a degree that many just can't fathom to ultimately answer. And so in order that we can fully understand this question and answer it completely accurately, we have to go to the greatest source of truth that our world has ever seen. And that is not the encyclopedia, that is not the University of Virginia or Virginia Tech or any other university, but it is to an ancient book called the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. And whenever we are seeking to ask hard questions like, is Jesus the only way to heaven? We have to consult the manual in which God gave us the New Testament. So we have to ask ourselves, what did Peter say? What did Paul say? What did John say? And then we have to ask ourselves, what did Jesus say? Well, do you remember what Paul said in Galatians? And very, it, we believe that the book of Galatians was a letter that was to be circulatory. That is, it was one letter that was written to a region full of churches in Galatia. And, and 60 years, about around 60-ish AD, is, is one of the first letters Paul wrote. And it's amazing that just shortly, a few decades after Jesus was alive on this earth, the Bible says in Galatians 1 that Paul is marveled, that is, he is moved with awe that these churches have left the teaching of the gospel of Christ. And he said that if any other person or being or angel 
our messenger says another gospel that they have preached. He says, let them be accursed. Well, what did Peter say? Well, in the book of Acts chapter 4, we see another message Peter is preaching. And in the middle of his message, he says, neither is there salvation. And in the context, we know that this means deliverance from our sins. So he says, neither is there salvation or deliverance for our sins through any other person. Only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And the context he's speaking of is one name, and that is Jesus What does John say? In fact, John is quoting Jesus in the gospel of John in chapter 14. And he quotes Jesus by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then what what does John say in the book of Revelation? Today, I want you to understand in in this whole context of, of our culture, accepting anything to be true except the Bible, anything to be absolute except the absolute truth of the certainty of God's word, I want you to understand this, that Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, leaves us with no doubts about where God stands concerning the exclusiveness of Jesus being the only way to heaven. And so today, I want you to maybe write down this or think about this thought. It's found in verse number 6, three words today. The everlasting gospel. Would you say that with me? The everlasting gospel. Say it again. The everlasting gospel. And one more time, please. The everlasting gospel. Today, the title of my sermon is called The Message of the Everlasting Gospel. The everlasting gospel is the gospel that has always existed. This is the gospel of truth, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God foreordained before the foundation of the world. And this is the message that that a Messiah would come and a Messiah would be born of a virgin, that a Messiah would live a sinless life, that a Messiah would come and heal the sick and raise the dead and heal all sorts of manner of diseases and feed many with just five loaves of bread and two small fishes. And we read that this Messiah would, would come and he would be the anointed and he would be called the Christ. And We know that this would be the one we call Jesus. God manifested in the flesh and he would also go to Calvary and there bear the sins of this world so that sinners like you and me could come to faith and repentance in him. And then he would be placed in a tomb as Psalm 16 speaks about how the Messiah would would be raised to new life. And he would defeat death, hell, and the grave. And we read about how this Messiah would ascend up to glory. And we know that Jesus ascended up to glory, but that's not the entirety of the gospel. The rest of the gospel is still yet to be completed. And that is the descension of Christ, how Jesus would come back and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. The, the Messiah of the Old Testament is referred to this way. And he, we know this is Jesus and, and he is spoken of throughout the book of Revelation, how he is coming back again. Paul spoke about it. John spoke about it. And Jesus himself spoke about it. My friends, that is the everlasting gospel in a nutshell. But it's interesting, as we come to these several verses here in Revelation chapter 14, we see that God gives these angels a message to declare to the known world that is the future known world. But as I've been thinking about these verses and thinking about How could we summarize the everlasting gospel in one sentence? 
Of course, I could talk to you the rest of the day, the rest of the week, and the rest of the year about the everlasting gospel and the minute details of it all. But how can we summarize it with one sentence? I begin to rack my mind. How could it be done? And as I've been meditating in these verses, here's the thought, the key thought that I want you to walk away with today. The message of the everlasting gospel calls unbelievers to repentance and believers to endurance. The message of the everlasting gospel calls unbelievers to repentance and believers to endurance. That is the message that is being delivered here in this passage of Scripture and is really the summarization of the everlasting gospel. Now, that being said, I want to ask us all this question. What does this text teach us about the everlasting gospel? I believe this passage reveals to us the four parts of the everlasting gospel. And today, just briefly, I want to walk through these verses and share with you the four parts of the everlasting gospel from this passage. And I might cross-reference a few other verses just to tie it all in because we know Scripture is always tied together with other passages. So that being said, let's look at verses 6 and 7. I want to share with you part number one of the everlasting gospel, and it's this thought. The world is summoned to give God fearful adoration. The world is summoned to give God fearful adoration. John fixes his focus on an angelic being, and this angelic being begins most likely in heaven where God's throne is. But we also know that heaven is also called the outer space where the stars and constellations are. And we also know heaven is also called the sky where the birds fly. And in verse number six, the Bible speaks about, it says, I saw another angel fly in the middle of heaven. And the Bible says that this angel had the everlasting gospel. This word everlasting, it means eternal. It means without a beginning and without an ending. And that is the message of Christ. The message of Christ has no beginning and has no ending. And it is for all those who live within the time period of time that we're living in. And it goes on to say to preach. This is the same word that we are called to go and herald forth the good news of Jesus Christ in our day. And this angel is going to fly over the earth and to, and listen, verse number six literally displays the heart of God. How God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, as Peter said in his epistle. And he says, to every nation, to every kindred, to every tongue, and to every people. God loves all nations. God loves all nationalities. God loves all those who speak other languages. And he loves all people groups. And that is why Jesus came. And it's interesting here, if you, if you know this passage, you know there's a connection to Matthew chapter 24. Earlier today, we were talking about one of Jesus' greatest sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. My favorite sermon that Jesus preached was on the Mount of Olives. Because he is giving his perspective on the apocalypse. And John is referring to him many times. But in Matthew chapter 24 and in verse number 14, we see that John is writing a fulfillment of Jesus's own prophecy where it says that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations 
and then shall the end come. Now, there's always been a way, a couple ways to handling Matthew 24, verse 14. Many people in our world today, and I used to hold to this view, would say that the message of Christ has to reach every tribe and every people group on this earth, and that God's word has got to be translated in their language. It's not what this verse means. In fact, I believe verse number 14 of Matthew 24 is going to be fulfilled when this angel in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 is flying through the sky and delivering the message of the everlasting gospel to all the world at that time. And in a sense, this will be the world's final time and final opportunity to bow down and worship Jesus Christ as God. And notice he says here in verse number seven, it says with a loud voice. When I read this verse, I thought about that time when we were in Callaway, Virginia, back at the, the Young's estate on that farm in Callaway. And we had, uh, we, many of you that was early on in the ministry when I was here, so maybe some of you weren't able to be there, but we had a big old cookout. There was a river there and, and back in the, in the woods there, and we had a great time. And, and Brother Young drove his truck up, and he stood on top of his truck and got his Bible there. And you have to understand, he had a voice that every preacher lusts after. <laughs> I mean, every preacher covets after a voice like that. His voice was booming. And when I think of this voice like Brother Young, how he didn't need any amplification and his voice just echoed throughout Callaway, Virginia that day. I think about how this angel is gonna have a booming voice that makes a voice such as booming as Brother Young's voice sound very small like a whisper. And this voice is gonna be traveling all throughout the known world saying, fear God and give him glory. The world is summoned to give God fearful adoration. Are you saying, Brother Brian, that God is trying to scare them into believing? Yes, yes. You know, there's been this whole, uh, this whole new idea that, that we don't have to scare people to believe in the gospel. Well, I want you to know this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. It is a scary thing to walk into eternity into hell. And so here is one final call of this angel summoning this world to fear God and give him glory. Fear God. Listen, this fearful adoration gives this idea fear God because he is the judge of this world. He is. God is the judge. Fear him. Give him the honor, give him the respect, and give him the reverence he, he deserves. But, but in essence, we know we teach and preach this word fear means honor, respect, and obey. And here we have to understand that this is one final call to bow and give him glory. This same word glory is the same where we get doxology from. That is praise God from whom all blessings flow. We are being summoned in a sense this world, the future is giving this opportunity to Fear God and give him glory. Why? Well, the Bible says, for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour of judgment is going to come. And it is scary to think about how we will stand before a holy, righteous, and just God and give an account for all that we've said and done. And that is why you need the gospel. 
That is why you need the atoning work of Christ on the cross to be applied to your account. Because it is only through the work of Christ on the cross can you escape this judgment that is to come. Notice he goes on to say, to give him glory. We are called to fear him because he is the judge. But give glory to God because he is the sovereign Lord of this world. You see, earlier in, this, in, this, in chapter 13, we read about the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they're coming on using deception to deceive. And listen, the Antichrist is trying to summon the world to fear him because he says, hey, if you don't receive my mark, you are going to die a death by my hand. If you don't worship my image, you are going to die. And if you don't pledge your allegiance to my kingdom and my system of government, you will die. You see, the Antichrist is trying to use the, a similar type of fear, but it's a falsified fear. God's fear can lead us to repentance and ultimately absolute praise and adoration. But then he goes on to say, worship him. This word worship, it gives the idea like a dog is bowing down before his master and licking his master's hand. So he says, this angel says, fear him, give glory to him, and worship him. In other words, his, his threefold message, he's, he's a preacher, he's got three points. Fear God, give glory to God, and worship God. We learn from the best. We learn from the angelic messenger. And he says, worship him. Why would we worship this God? Because he is the maker of this universe. Who is the maker? Well, Genesis 1 says that God is the creator of the world. But remember what Colossians says? Colossians says that Jesus is the creator of the world. You remember what John said in John 1? He said that the word created the world. So we see that this angel is pointing people to the Messiah, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Worship God because he is the creator of the world. Give glory to God because he is the sovereign Lord of this world. Fear God because he is the judge of this world. My friends, part one of the everlasting gospel is the world is summoned to give, to give God fearful adoration. But now let me draw your attention to verse number eight to get the second part of this everlasting gospel. But remember, remember, the message of the everlasting gospel calls unbelievers to repentance and believers to endurance. That is the message. And so far we've seen that, that the world is summoned to give God fearful adoration. But in verse number eight, secondly today, part number two of the everlasting gospel is this. The city of Babylon will receive God's temporal destruction. The city of Babylon will receive God's temporal destruction. Now this part, verse number eight, is a highly debated verse because of the word Babylon. Would you say Babylon with me? Babylon. If you've ever done any kind of study in the book of Revelation, you'll know that there, there are many different opinions about who exactly Babylon is. But I want you to know this first of all, in verse number eight, the second angel foretells Babylon's future with affirmation. It is affirmed that whatever Babylon is, and we'll get into it in a minute, and we'll get into it later on in the book of Revelation, but whatever Babylon is, it is going to be destroyed. Simple as that. The angel, the second angel affirms that to us today, that we know this system called Babylon is going to finally cease to exist. 
it'll be affirmed in the future. But in a sense, we've already seen the future revealed here in this verse. But then we have to kind of try to summarize, at least I'm not going to try to get into the details, uh, the intimate details about Babylon, but and about exactly what it is, because ultimately we'll find out exactly what it is in the future, but, but I want to share with you a few thoughts. This word Babylon takes us back to Genesis chapter 11, and it takes us back to the Tower of Babel, and that is the first time, the first recorded time in Scripture where idolatry is manifested in the world. And then we see another time when Babylon is mentioned, and that is in the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, who is a type of the Antichrist. We, there's always been these types of men and people in our world who try to be like God. And that's what the Antichrist is going to be like. But Nebuchadnezzar built an image and wanted all of them to worship his image. And it was a season of idolatry. And so Babylon here is the system in which the Antichrist will lead and charge. It will be a one-world government, it will be a one-world religion, and it will be a one-world economy. And this Babylon system is declared to have fallen. And so let me summarize this Babylon thing with you. The Antichrist system called Babylon will face God's destruction. It will. It will come to be destroyed. And what I personally think is I personally think that this ancient concept of this dominating world empire like Babylon or one like Rome in the days that John was writing, oftentimes he's, John might be referring to Rome in which he's living in by calling him Babylon because they know that Rome oversaw the whole region that Babylon at one time oversaw. And so this, this whole concept of a world-dominating power like Babylon and like Rome will one day be dominating the world in the days of the Antichrist. And the Bible says that this world-dominating figure and power will be destroyed by the omnipotent power of God. But then the verse goes on to say, because she made all nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The Antichrist will cause the world to commit spiritual fornication. Now, this word fornication gives this idea of sexual immorality. And we've covered this a lot, but we're not going to get into the details today. But, but the difference in here is just as somebody would commit uh, adultery with their spouse, the Bible is telling us here that this system of Babylon, which is led by the Antichrist, is going to cause the world to commit spiritual adultery against God. And just as God is going to pour out his wrath upon the world. Here, the Antichrist pours out his wrath upon the world and all those who don't follow his leading. The everlasting gospel calls unbelievers to repentance and believers to endurance. Part one is the world is summoned to give God fearful adoration. Part two is found in verse number eight. The city of Babylon will receive God's temporal destruction. But then let's look at part number three, verses nine, 10, and 11. Part number three teaches us this thought about the coming future. The unbelieving world will receive God's eternal indignation. The unbelieving world will receive God's eternal indignation. 
In fact, verse 9, 10, 11 reassures us that you will not accidentally receive the mark of the beast. And remember, as I've shared before, throughout the English Bible, especially the King James, there are times where the mark of the beast, it either says in your right hand and in your forehead, or sometimes it even says on. So the whole idea is, which one is it? Well, yes. I mean, you know, upon, you know, just don't, nobody should take any chances, but you're not going to accidentally receive this mark in the future. And here you're going to be swept away to follow suit the world and the Antichrist, and then you're going to you're going to receive it, or at least these lost people will. You're not going to accidentally, a believer's not going to accidentally receive it because they're going to recognize who this leader is and the false prophet. But notice here, notice it's interesting, and the first angel speaks with a loud voice, but the second angel just doesn't say it's a loud voice. But verse number nine, it says, this one is a loud voice. So the third angel foretells the future of all the unbelievers with certainty. So just as we can with certainty believe that Jesus is the exclusively the only way to heaven. We can also with certainty say that if you try to find salvation in other, any other way, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Specifically the lake of fire. Verse number nine says, third angel says with a loud voice, if any, if any man, this gives the idea of any man, woman, boy, or girl, any human being alive, who will worship that remember the same idea of the of the dog licking master's hand so if any man worship the beast that is the antichrist and his image that he will make and place in the temple in jerusalem and the bible says and receives that means you accepted his mark in your forehead or in your hand here it speaks about also in verse 10 that you would drink of the wine of the wrath of god so verse 10 teaches us the unbelieving world will face the wrath of God Almighty. Not only the third angel foretells the future of the unbelieving, the unbelieving, unbelievers, excuse me, with certainty, but the unbelieving world will face the wine of God, the, the, excuse me, the wrath of God Almighty. Now it's interesting, the Bible does say here in verse number 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now lo notice this phrase, it says, which is poured out without mixture. What in the world does that mean? Well, let me explain something to you. Going back to the Jewish culture, they would take the grapes off the vine and they would press them and turn them into grape juice and they would use the fermentation process to preserve the juice so that they could drink it. And then when they would go to drink that fermented juice, they would mix it with water and dilute it with water. And the reason why they would dilute it with water is because that, that wine can be intoxicated and could cause them to be drunken and cause them to sin against God in their drunken state. And of course, Scripture tells us clearly to not be drunk with wine. And so they would take it and they would dilute it with water so it would not be potent. So what does it mean here? What it means here is that God's wrath will have no dilution of water. That is, you will receive, all those who receive this mark will not, God will not hold anything back in his judgment towards them because they have reached ultimate reprobation. And what a sad day it will be for them. And then here's another thought. I've said this, every preacher 
or with any salt has said this, that if you die without Christ, you'll spend eternity separated from God. But verse 10 says that all these unbelievers will be tormented. Notice the terminology. A similar term that is used in Luke 16 about how he lifted up his eyes being in torments. But then it says, it says with fire and brimstone. Brimstone is the word we get sulfur from. It says, listen to this. It says, in the presence of the holy angels. Now, we don't know exactly which angels this is. It might be the archangels. We don't know. But it says, and in the presence of the Lamb. Well, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11 says that all the unbelieving world will not be in the presence of God for all eternity. So what does this mean? Is this a contradiction? No, it's not. Let me explain it to you. What it means is that in this moment, when we go to heaven as believers, we will be soaking up the presence of God's grace and his love and his mercy. But the unbelievers in in hell and the lake of fire will not be in the presence of God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. They will be soaking up the presence of God's wrath for all eternity. Notice the context. This wrath will be poured out without mixture. And so they will be tormented by God's wrath forever and ever and ever, as verse 11 says. And so we have to ask ourselves a question, as many have asked, how could a loving God do this to somebody he created? It's a fair question. But the answer lies within the life of Christ. It is the life of Christ that gave the world the opportunity to escape the wrath of God. And mankind is responsible for what he does with the gospel. And so verse 11 teaches us that the unbelieving world will be tormented throughout all eternity. I I don't like this idea. I wish soul sleep was true. I wish we just burned up and was annihilated and ceased to exist. But the Bible actually says in verse 11, let's look at this. This is tough stuff. The Bible makes it very, very clear today that in the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. That means for all eternity. Then it says, and they have no rest, day nor night. Remember in Luke chapter 16, he just wanted a little bit of water to quench his thirst. He wanted some type of rest. And then it says, all those who worship the beast, his image, and receive his mark of his name. So this is also true for all those who reject Christ in our time. That is, if you have heard the gospel and you reject the gospel, then you will spend eternity separated from the presence of God's grace, love, and mercy, and experience the presence of God's wrath for all eternity. That's why you are summoned to believe the gospel. The unbelieving world will receive God's eternal indignation. The city of Babylon will receive God's temporal destruction. The world is summoned to give God fearful adoration. This is the final call for humanity to come to repentance and faith in Christ. The message of the everlasting gospel calls unbelievers to repentance and believers to endurance, and that leads us to verses 12 and 13. So we've kind of heard the bad news. 
these verses here are kind of bad news in verses 6 through 11. And really, ultimately, the bad news is that Satan will lose. And the good news is, is that Jesus is going to win. God has declared it for us. But what is the good news for those who die in Christ? Well, right here. What is the good news for all those who die in the tribulation period and they're persecuted and they're martyred for their faith? Well, verse 12 and 13 reveals to us the good news. Part four of this everlasting gospel, which this, these verses can really apply to any person who dies in the Lord, but it's a special hand of blessing upon all those who will die in the tribulation period for their faith. Part four of this everlasting gospel is this. The dead in Christ will be blessed with hopeful expectation. The dead in Christ will be blessed with hopeful expectation. Verse 12, it says, here is the patience of the saints. This word patience, it means, it means patient endurance. The Christian life is a call to patient endurance. It's a call. This life is a race. The Christian life is a race. And we're in this for the long haul. So we have to endure. So many times the other writers of the New Testament use this word patience. Gives the same idea. Endurance. We have to endure the Christian life with all the trials, with all the tragedies, with all the temptations. Because we know a day of overcoming will come to pass. And so today, whatever you might be going through, I want to encourage you to endure. You know, people ask us all the time, How, how's the church doing in all this? I'll say, well, we're enduring and persevering. We are. And by God's grace, we're going to continue to endure this time. And we're going to continue to persevere. And that's what has to happen in every season of life. But think about these martyrs. Think about these ones who are going to be alive in the tribulation period. They are going to have to endure things that we don't have to endure. They're going to have to be patient with, with the reality that Christ is coming back soon. But then it goes on to say, Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The Christian life is not only a call to patient endurance, but the Christian life is also a call to faithful obedience. That's the idea here, that we will patiently endure by keeping the commandments of God. That is what we're called to do, to obey. Notice here it says keep. This gives the idea of guarding and obeying. So we guard and we obey. In other words, we take God's word, we hide it in our hearts, and it will help guard us from the enemy when he attacks, and then by guarding it in our hearts, we will be able to live it out each and every day. The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. But then the encouragement is found in verse 13. Now, whether this is the third angel or another angel or God's voice or some, we don't know who's speaking this. We don't know. Just we'll find out when we get here in the future. But verse 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write. And here's the words that John was commanded to write. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Pause. This is true for all believers of all ages, if you know Christ as Savior. But notice 
the context of the verse. It says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. So from the moment that this message is declared in the tribulation period, they are gonna receive a special blessing. And then it says, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. They will labor in ways that we will not have to labor. Praise God. Praise God, we don't have to labor like they will. But then it says, and their works do follow them. So here's the final thought about this. The Christian life is a call to expectant promise. We have a promise. And it's not the promise of any temporal promises. It's an eternal promise that we can rest assured on that it's going to come to pass. The everlasting gospel is a call for unbelievers to come to repentance and believers to run the race of endurance. As we think about this last verse, think about this. 163,898. Did you know that's the number of people who will pass away this year? 6,829. Did you know that's the number of every person who will walk through the doorway of death every hour? I'm sorry, that number, 163,000, is the number that every day somebody passes away. 6,829 is the number for every person that dies every hour. 114, that's the number of people who will die every minute. And 1.9, that's the number of just under two people die every second. 8,159 is the number of how many Americans will die every day. Did you know your life is going to speak a message just like these angels are going to speak a message in the future? What message do you wish to leave behind when you walk through the doorway of death into eternity? What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.